and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, today I welcome back an author I've had the pleasure of interviewing on the podcast a couple of times before. Steve Matthews is the author of the best-selling Hitler trilogy, Hitler's Brothel, Hitler's Assassins and Hitler's Resurrection. Each of these books are based on true events, constructing unique narratives and perspectives around the horrific deeds and atrocities committed by the Nazi regime in World War II. And it was following the publication of Hitler's Brothel that I first became acquainted with Steve's fascinating work. This year, Steve is celebrating the publication of a new novel, a move away from the events of World War II, going back in time to examine the sacrifices, heroism and courage displayed by many who fought in the Great War. And one man in particular, Private Ted Watts. Filled with Steve's trademark wit and incredible attention to detail, Ted Watts' diary is a poignant examination of one man's remarkable courage, determination and will to survive, despite the overwhelming obstacles he faced not only as a soldier, but as a man. Set in the 1900s between Australia, Europe and Egypt, I laughed at the antics of Ted and his fellow Anzacs as they fought in Turkey and France and cried at the bravery and heroism of so many who sacrificed their youth and gave their lives for their country. A brilliantly researched, colourful, yet at times confronting book that doesn't shy away from the awful toll of war, but which still remains hopeful. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, listeners, so I'm delighted to welcome Steve back to the podcast. How are you, Steve? Hello, Claudine, and thank you very much. It's an honour to be here again. I love talking to you. And I love talking to you. Gosh, you've been a busy man these last few years, haven't you? Yeah, I I try and do a a book a year. So I, I try and have something come out in October, just before the big American writers hit the scene at Christmas. But I always get tangled up with the rich and the famous Australian writers. <laughs> no, there's some super writers, Trent Dalton and Mr. Hammer and people like that. And I always get tangled up with them and struggle for shelf space. So please buy my book, Claudine's <laughs> Business. <laughs> well, after this discussion, they're going to be running out to buy this book. As I mentioned, it is an incredible book. And it is also a bit of a departure from your last three books. Yeah, it's as much a love story as a historical fiction. And as I do with all my books, I started with the end. I don't want to give a spoiler alert. I don't really want to mention the end, except for when I wrote it the first time I cried and I knew what was coming because I wrote it. And every time I've read it, I've cried at the last three pages. And in fact, the editor who helped me a lot with this book, when I sent her her copy, she wrote back to me and said, I've got the book. I went straight to the last three pages and bawled my eyes out. (laughs) So I'm pleased it had that effect because I wanted it to. I wanted to write a love story as well as looking at some historical facts. Yes, indeed. Well, I have to say those last three pages were something I wasn't expecting at all. So there was a bit of a plot twist there, which I absolutely loved. So given that this was a bit of a departure from your previous novels. Had you always intended to turn your attention to World War One, or was there a more specific inspiration to begin writing this book? Well, that's an interesting question because I wrote this book two years before I started the Hitler series. And my publishers said our World War One has been done and dusted. And even though it's a love story, let's put it on the shelf for now and do the Hitler books. And there's two reasons I wrote it. One is I got the idea for the ending. 
But the other one is on the wall in our dining room is my grandfather's World War One paraphernalia, his medals and uh, some correspondence. His old paybook is there, Claudine, and there's a lovely story behind the World War One soldiers' paybooks because on the 1st of July 1916, in the battle at Beaumont Hamel at Sierre in France, my granddad went over the top in the trenches. And that battle is featured in Ted Watt's diary as well. There's a tribute to my granddad and those other men. But before they went over, the sergeant went round the, uh, all the different units and gave the men a pencil. And he told them, get your pay books out, boys. Write your last will and testament in pencil in the back of the pay book and give your pay book to the clerk who's following me. So if you don't make it back, we've got your last will and testament. And I, I've got that pay book with my granddad's original handwriting that he wrote in the trench on the 1st of July, 1916, before he went over the top and faced the German machine guns. And I wanted to pay tribute to that. So those are the two reasons I wrote Ted Watts, I think. I don't think there could be a better way to honour your grandfather mm. than with this beautiful book, Steve. So for the benefit of those listeners who haven't yet read it, can you tell us more about the story? Like all my books, it goes all over the place. <laughs> it starts off when Ted arrives in Sydney as an orphan, an English orphan, and he's brought up by his ne'er-do-well aunt. She's a, a strange, eccentric and odd woman who ends up penniless, despite the fact that Ted has a little bit of income from the life insurance from England. And she ends up working in a brothel. And while in the brothel, Ted meets a soldier from the Boer War. And he's actually lives in the basement of the brothel. And Ted has already got for some reason, he's got a, an, an interest in war and he's read war books and he plays with soldiers and things like that. And he meets this old chap, old George, down in the basement eventually. And old George has got no legs. And George owns a gun that he kept from the Boer War, an old Remington 1875 pistol, standard issue to the British Army in the Boer War. And he's going to kill himself with it because he's got gangrene in his stumps and life is not good. And the fascination for Ted and war comes from that because George had a medal and Ted thought that was wonderful, even though he's lost his legs. He wanted to be a hero. From there, Ted's life goes astray as his aunt opens her own brothel and the boyfriend comes in and doesn't treat Ted very nicely at all. But the story is basically told through a German lady's eyes, a woman called Gertie. And in 1960 in Bremen in Germany, she's putting away all her deceased mother's belongings and she discovers a World War I uniform that belonged to her stepfather. And in the pockets of the uniform is the gun and a diary. So the story unfolds where she tells Ted's life story. She narrates it to the reader through her own eyes, looking at the German side, as well as looking at the Allied side. And that's something I wanted to show because the Germans were just doing their job as well. It's the commanders that stuffed everything up on both sides. But the young men and some of the officers were very decent people, just doing their job as commanded. And uh, I wanted to show the German side for a change as well. So that's how that part of the book 
came about. So it's a long-winded story in a way. It covers 60 years, Claudine, as you know. But I think it's a fast read. That was the idea of it. It's a page turner and there's quite a few twists and turns in there. And the twists and turns are really seen through Gertie's eyes as well as through the readers, I think. That's what I tried to achieve. I agree with you. It is a really fast-paced read and that's what I loved about it. We were covering a lot of ground quite quickly Mm. and I really loved uh, what effectively felt like a dual point of view. I want to come back and talk about that structure a little bit later. But what I wanted to ask you in particular, I mean, you've just said that this was a book that you wrote to honour your grandfather's service in, in the Great War. So was Ted Watts based on your grandfather's life? No, not at all. Ted Watts just a figment of my imagination. But I can see the book behind you and the shadow behind the title is actually my grandfather. The, the publishers used pictures of my grandfather to promote him and he's on all the social media and everything. Yeah. And at the back of the book, there's two pieces of correspondence. One is from the general who commanded the battle and the other one is a telegram that was given to the men actually in the trenches when they did their paybook bizzo. It was actually passed to the men before they went over the top. And it must have been retyped, I don't know how many thousands of times, by some clerk in a tent back behind the front line. And it basically said that the king was taking a, a great deal of interest in, in the division that my granddad was in. And I have that original telegram as well. So um, that's in the, the back of the book to add some reality to it. Yeah, fantastic. So going back to Ted, he was a remarkable character in so many ways. As you mentioned when you were talking about the book, he had a tough upbringing and yet I think to his core he remained a very decent person, even when I think he could be forgiven for being anything less than decent. So I wanted to ask you, Steve, tell me about your decision to give him this kind of background. Was this typical, do you think, of the boys who lied about their ages to enlist? I mean, he was barely 16 or 17 when he went to war. Yeah, there's a picture that sticks in my mind. I can't remember who wrote the book, but there's a picture of a 14-year-old boy in a World War One Army uniform on the front page, and he's got a cap on and everything. And And I actually saw that before I wrote Ted Watts, and I thought, my God, what on earth made a 14-year-old boy or, or anyone want to sign up for, for the great adventure, as they called it. That influenced me a great deal. I don't know initially whether they were brave or naive or bored with life on the farm. You know that film Gallipoli, that wonderful film Gallipoli, Mel Gibson and his mate join up and go out to Gallipoli and they've they've had life on the farm and in the city and they're just bored and they want an adventure. I don't know. I don't know what made my characters want to join up. I think it's a bit of everything. But when you look at it in reality, Claudine, where did they get their courage? I don't know. When reality kicked in and they're in those trenches, they're being bombed and everything else, and they have to climb out of a trench and walk towards machine guns with bayonets at the end of their rifles. That was their only defence. And they walked across 100 yards of mud and dirt and dead bodies and dead horses and trenches and everything you can imagine, they walked towards German machine guns. How on earth did they get the courage? It's beyond me. And I really had to try and explain that as a writer, how I saw it with my characters and the inner strength and inner courage that all the main characters displayed in the end, despite their character faults, if you like. They all displayed great courage in the end. And I believe that's true of all the young men that went, all the young Australian men. 
had to pay tribute to that Claudine I had to you know I was just thinking as a mother of two young men myself I can't imagine how family survived knowing that their young men were out there fighting such a brutal and bloody war and so it, it got me starting to think about whether or not the social conditions at the time in Australia contributed to this impetus to sign up you know the idea that the the soldiers could earn a steady income travel the world and do something for their country at the same time I think it did they were paid twice as much as the pies so that was a big draw card as mm. well because they thought they'd be rich <laughs> and in in relative terms of course they were rich when they went to Egypt and places like that yeah they were very well cashed up it's like the Americans when they came to Australia in the second world war yeah. they were cashed up compared to our people weren't they it's the same principle I think yeah, indeed. So, Steve, how important was the rhetoric of Australians' duty to the empire at this time? And how did that inform this story, do you think? I think it's critical. And there's a, a stage in the fighting where Sergeant Nutt is explaining to the boys why they're there, because one of the main characters is doubting why they're there. And they think the king isn't interested. And what the hell are they doing there in among all the blood and guts? And Bobner unfolds a Union Jack and puts it on the floor. It's dark and they get a torch and shine the Union Jack on it. And he gives this big speech about if we don't fight for this flag, there'll be a German flag flying over our parliament building. There'll be German flags over Buckingham Palace. This is something we have to do. We're not fighting for Australia. We're fighting for the crown. And I don't want to get involved in the argument about whether or not we should stand alone as a country now. I'm a, a royalist, but I'm not a lover of the royal family. But I feel that the First World War, the Second World War, Vietnam, all those wars, all our young men died for the crown, for the flag. And uh, I feel reluctant to say goodbye to it for that reason. Mm. And only that reason. And I think it was a big thing at the time in 1418, you know, those early 1900 years. The crown was everything, wasn't it? The king was God, it was a distant, untouchable figure, virtually unknown. But everybody was in awe of the king and the royal family. Yeah. And, and I think they were proud to go and do their duty. I don't think that would happen nowadays. But in those days, it was it was a very significant thing and it was an honourable thing to do. Now, the amount of research you must do for these books, Steve, is evident. The sights, the sounds, the smells, and all the moving parts of the Allied campaign across Turkey and Europe. It was simply incredible. Can you tell me, how do you go about researching a book like this? There's no great secret to it. I watch films. <laughs> I don't know how many documentaries. I don't know how many. I read, read books, scoured YouTube and the internet. And I do what I always do. When I begin the writing process, I get a, a little book, notebook, and I tab several pages for each character and each set of situations. So, for instance, the battle at Beaumont Hamel, then I had about six, seven, eight pages of notes for that. So there's a little tab on the side of the book, Beaumont Hamel, and then I researched the battle and the logistics of it, what the Germans did, what we did, all that stuff, and I just make notes in those pages then i move on to um to the brothel at uh, darlinghurst where they lived that was that was harder to research but i i managed to find some photographs of old brothels and things like that and just made key notes about those and so i sort of build the story up in a notebook as i go along for the research and then i've got the basis of the story in about 200 pages of notes and that can take anything from three months to several years. 
And then I've always got the ending because it's the ending that gives me the idea for the book. So I go back to the start and work towards what I know the end will be. So that's how I go about researching it. Same as everybody else, I suppose. Writers are, are voyeurs, as you know, Claudine. And wherever I go, I've either got my phone with a, a microphone recording device on it or a notebook, and you see something or somebody that's interesting, a gesture, the way they smoke or anything like that. And you just scribble a little note down. I've got dozens, hundreds, thousands probably of silly little notes like that, that if I'm writing a book and I've got a character that smokes, I go to my notes on smoking. And I sort of think, oh, yeah, yeah, I think he'd probably do that. He'd blow smoke circles or whatever they're called. Or this character wouldn't, he'd have a, in um, Gladys's case, he's always got a cigarette, soggy cigarette out the corner of her mouth with a load of ash on it. Yeah. So things like that are things that I've spotted in real life. And I've just made notes and I, I just pull them in as well to try and flesh out the characters and make them seem a little bit more real. But one thing I don't do is spend a lot of time describing glorious sunsets and the sort of literary side of it. John Grisham is one of my greatest heroes. I absolutely adore his writing. And he doesn't waste words. He just tells the story. He barely describes the characters. You see the characters in your mind's eye as you read the book, that he doesn't describe the colours of their eyes or uh, anything weird about them. He just tells the story. That's what I try to achieve with with all my books, is I just want to tell the story, uh, keep the pages turning and not clutter it too much. And in fact, the book was cluttered because the publishers cut it by about 25,000 words. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, Fascinating. And, yeah, and they were right. The beginning of the book was an awful lot longer because it dealt with Ted's childhood and there were some really funny things that happened with the Dunny man and as he learned Australian ways. And they thought it took too long for him to become a man, to fall in love and to make promises and go to the Great War. And in hindsight, they were right. But I personally, I like the longer version because it made me laugh a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to kill your darlings, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know this, Claudine, as well as I do. Words are very hard to come by. And when you seem to yourself, you look at them and you think, I've got them all in the right order. It reads nice. And then yes. someone says, oh, get rid of those 10 pages, will you? It hurts. It's really painful. So, Steve, was there anything you uncovered in your research that surprised you? Not really, because I, I sort of knew a fair bit about the First World War because of my granddad. One of the statistics that brought a tear to my eye was with the battle at Beaumont Hamel, there was a unit of soldiers from Canada. I think there was just under 900 of them. And, and this is truth as well. This is reality. They went over the top on 1st of July, 1916. And the next day, out of the 900 soldiers, there were 67 went to roll call. And I've gone all goosebumpy thinking about that. So all those young men died on that one day at that one time. And that surprised me, even though I knew the statistics from the Great War and they're horrifying, just to, to isolate it down to that group of soldiers, a whole army unit was wiped out, yeah. just 67 left. That surprised me and, and brought home the reality of it. And the fun the boys had in Egypt, 
that surprised me as well. Mm. And I had to tone that down a bit because they were quite naughty. Ah, yes, they were naughty indeed. Especially the Aussies. And have you seen the, the Gallipoli film? I have, but it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really good film because they have a lot of fun in, in Egypt when they're training. And uh, that was toned down a fair bit as well. But but the Aussie boys from the farms were suddenly introduced to brothels and, and prostitutes and, and haggling and con men. And these were blokes who rode horses into town and had a beer and then rode the horse back and worked on the farm seven days a week. They'd never been exposed to any of that. So they relished it. And the British officers absolutely hated them for it. They absolutely hated the Australians because they were all larrikins, which is something we're proud of, being Aussies ourselves. And as I say, the British officers absolutely despised them until it came to the fighting. And then top of the list was the Australians when it came to the fighting because of their courage. Yeah. And again, I tried to portray that properly in the book. Now, there was an interesting scene when Ted was in Egypt, and I don't know if this will indicate all my ignorance on the history of this time but at one stage sergeant nut takes the boys out into the desert and gets them to start digging holes trenches and then the the british officer comes along and calls them diggers yeah was that the genesis of them being affectionately called diggers or was it was it something else I'm so pleased you picked that up, Claudine. Thank you. You definitely read it, didn't you? Oh, I absolutely have read it. In depth. (laughs) Because I put that in there deliberately. And in fact, the uh, the colonel, he was a bumptious British officer. And you could see he despised the Aussies. But he was so impressed that they were out there training for when they got to France to, to quickly dig trenches. So he came up with the expression, diggers. But whether that, I don't think that was the first time it was used in Egypt. I think it went back to Gallipoli. Right. Yeah, I think. I couldn't find a a definitive answer to that. So I thought, well, I'm going to make my own definitive answer. And uh, it's a good bit. I like that bit. Now, Ted's diary, as you mentioned, it was an integral part of this story. And Ted was faithful to his promise to Maddie to document his life story in it. I know you told us about the pay books, but I wondered in your research, did you encounter or uncover many instances of soldiers who actually kept a diary? No, I didn't search for them because I thought about it, to be truthful, but I didn't want it to to colour what I was doing. And and it was tempting to to tell the story through the pages of the diary in front of the reader. So, you know, you turn to page whatever date it is, August 1917, and there's Ted's page in front of you as a reader. Mm. But I wanted to narrate it a different way through the German eyes um, so that it all came back in a circle. At at the end, it arced, as writers say. Circling back to the structure of this book and the fact that you have told it effectively through Gertie's eyes, she's reading Ted's diary. And the reason that you did this was because you wanted a rounder version of the story, things that happened and the and the sacrifices that both sides made. Yeah, very much, very much. There's a, a speech in there made by the German commander von Falkenray. And this was minuted word for word when he said this in the tent before the battle at Beaumont Hamel. And he said, I'm not interested in how many soldiers we kill. I want to take the land 
And if we take the land, we will have killed enough soldiers. So our dream is to take the land, forget the deaths. I want French soil running with French blood. And that's actually, I've gone all goosebumpy thinking about that, Claudine. That's actually minuted somewhere in, in the records that I found. And, and so I put that in. And Bauer, the German that Ted gets embroiled with at some stage, he reacts to that as a character. He's a doctor. And von Falkenray calls him back after he's briefed the men on the battle and what's going to happen and says to them, don't you like being a soldier? And he says, yeah, I'm a soldier. I'm not a butcher. Even though I wrote that, I thought that was quite profound because they weren't all butchers. They were all, a lot of them were very decent men who wanted to, to fight the battle for their country in a military way. And he was, he was told to slaughter several thousand prisoners to free up his own men to go back in the trenches. And again, I believe that actually happened although not with my character's fictional, but I believe that happened. Yeah, Ernst Bauer was a very interesting character and really did show the human side of the, the German army and the fact that he wasn't really interested in torturing people. He was more interested, as you say, in serving his country and about de- being a, a decent person. And I think he showed that in later stages of the book when he was in the town of Ardeen. I think at one stage he says to Ted, I just want to live a peaceful life. I, I've done my duty. I now just want to go back to living my life. Yeah. And th- I'm sure that's true of all of them on both sides. Yeah. On yeah. Both. They were all decent men just doing a very awful job. Steve, mm. if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? Can't give you one thing. I can give you a few. Courage uh, is one of the main things. Ordinary people have great courage. And none of us realise we've got it until we're up against it and it either emerges or doesn't. So that's one thing, because this is a study of mostly ordinary people. And the other thing is that love endures. I don't want to say any more about that because it's going to mess up the ending uh, for anybody that buys the book. But I promise I have not heard from anybody yet who hasn't teared up at the end of the book, apart from my wife. Everybody has read it so far, the publishers, my agent, the reviewers, everybody has teared up in some way or sobbed, except for Diane. So you said courage was one of the things that you'd like people to take away from this book, that love endures and what else? The deep spirit that people, that sort of crosses over with courage a bit, but we never know what's around the corner and we never know what's going to happen, as these young men didn't when they went to war and as Maddie didn't when she lost Ted because Ted went off to war and she was hoping that they'd marry and settle down and have a footy team full of children. So, you know, that was a great sacrifice by her as well. So I think the fact that none of us know what's around the corner and how we deal with what comes up is what makes us decent people or indecent people. And I think that's something that's an interesting subject in itself and like all my books there's little messages in there that i want people to think about when they get to the end of it how they would react in those circumstances and and i hope that comes through in the book as well and and makes people think we're there to entertain at the end of the day aren't we authors you know we entertain or we educate or we inform but that's what we're there for we're not brain surgeons 
You know, we just tell stories in the best way we can. And it's nice if you can put a little bit of a message in there without sounding patronising or anything like that. What's next for you? Are you writing something else? Will it continue in the vein of these last four books? Well, Claudine, I've turned to crime. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so so my publishers have a crime novel, which I hope will come out in 2024, yeah. based in Sydney in the year 2003, based around the state election when Bob Carr won a second time. Mm-hmm. And it involves police corruption and a, a few other things. So I've turned to crime. Well, you've gone to the dark side. Yeah, I have. I have. So I haven't got a contract for it. I don't know if if they're going to take it, but it's full of of humour and uh, it's got a good twist at the end. And uh, it's basically based on social injustice. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in that. There's a lot of things in life that a lot of people, for instance, not so much in Australia, but certainly in America, who are in prison, who are innocent. And circumstances have made them guilty, but they're actually innocent. And I wanted to write about that. And that's basically what this story is about, although it's built around the 2003 election and police corruption. It was a few years ago now that I first interviewed you for Hitler's Brothel. And I wondered in the time since you published another three novels, was there something that you know about yourself as a writer now that you didn't know before you published that first book? think so I've always had these stories in my head and I've always made millions of notes everywhere ever since I've been a child I've sort of enjoyed stories and and all the rest of it but I never knew how well I could tell them and I don't mean that to sound arrogant because I've had no training in in writing I've just read a lot of books and, and I read more biographies than I read anything else but I never realized how I could put it together until I did it. So I, I've learned that about myself. And I don't get writer's block, for instance, which is quite interesting. And again, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just say, oh, what if? And if that doesn't work, I, I kill someone off. <laughs> no, I do. I kill someone off, one of the main characters, and off you go again. So I've sort of learned those those things myself. But what if is... Uh, are two good words for writers to remember if you get stuck just what if this happened what if that happened yeah. you know so I've, I've learned that about myself I'm sort of self-taught and it, and it seems to work so far anyway so Steve if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books where can they find you www.stevematthewsauthor.com they're all in there somewhere Claudine thank you You're welcome. Steve, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you again today. I love this book and I know your loyal readers and new fans will too. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. My pleasure. I feel probed. (laughs) I've been probed, Claudine. I've I've got to lie down now. (laughs) It was lovely. You know how much I enjoy talking to you. So thank you very much. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.